Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Howard Rheingold, one of the founding fathers of writing and thinking and analyzing deeply the network world phenomenon. I mean, he goes way back to about the beginning of it. He's written numerous books, several of which we'll discuss today. And as usual, any books, articles, or organizations we talk about on the podcast will be available on the episode homepage at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Howard has a very long and interesting career, which we'll hit many of the points along the way, but one that's quite distinguished is he is a distinguished fellow at the Institute for the Future. He's also taught at Stanford and Berkeley, and as we'll talk about, has done many other interesting things. I'd also like to call out that Howard, listed as Howard Rheingold, is on Patreon. I support him. I suggest you do too. He's one of the treasures of our age. So, Howard, long, strange journey, huh? As I read on your bio, you got your first computer in 1981. I think I got mine in, in fact, I know I did. I got mine in 1980. And it said you plugged it into the internet in 1980, or not into the internet, but into the telephone in 1983 and got sucked into the net. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that early use of both the computer and then the net and how the two things kind of work together for you? Well, you know, the whole thing started uh, because I was tired of using a typewriter. I, at, that, at the point that I got a computer, I had been using a typewriter for 10 years. I had graduated to a correcting electric typewriter, which meant that you could type white over the last line that you typed. But, you know, if you're writing articles, you're writing books, uh, you mark up your page a lot, and then you got to retype the whole thing. And I heard a rumor that there, that people were using computers to write with and that you could move words around on a screen. Um, it wasn't easy to find it. I actually, I went out to Apple, which was like two buildings uh, in, oh, I guess the late 1970s, early 1980s. And there was a, a fellow there uh, by the name of Jeff Raskin, who actually was a person who initiated the Macintosh project a, a little bit later. And he said, well, you're, you're probably not going to be able to use an Apple uh, because the founders believe that, that, that people are only going to use it for programming in, in, in basic and playing games, and, and you don't need the hardware for lowercase letters. But then I, I read an article. It was in the 1977 Scientific American called Microelectronics and the Personal Computer by Alan Kay. And I recommend that to everybody to see what the original vision of personal computers was and Alan Kay had been working at a place called Park Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, and I was living in San Francisco, about a half hour drive away. Um, so I bugged them until I got uh, some some work writing articles about them, and that's sort of uh, another story. And at Park, uh, I I ended up walking around, uh, finding interesting people to to talk to and interview, and then uh, Xerox would find ways to place those articles and. I, I ran into a person by the name of Bob Taylor. It's not a name that's 
extremely well known, but he was extremely important in the creation of the ARPANET and personal computing. And he was the person who had funded Doug Engelbart. And so I interviewed him. And uh, for it, if people want to really hear an interesting story by an interesting guy, go look up the uh, interview he did at the University of Texas in, in Austin with John Markoff. It's on YouTube. Anyway, uh, meeting Engelbart really completely turned my life around. I realized that these, these machines were not just better typewriters, they were mind amplifiers. And I, his article, his 1962 article on augmenting human intellect really connected with me. I was not that interested in electronics, uh, but I was interested in kind of an overarching look of, at, at technology. I was very interested in the mind and in mind expansion and this connection between this new personal computer technology and the ability to enhance the way you think and, and communicate was very exciting to me. So at that time, uh, early 1980s, a lot of the talk was about the young Bill Gates and the young Steve Jobs, and people really didn't know about Bob Taylor and Xerox Park, Alan Kay, Doug Engelbart, and, and even, uh, you know, uh, Alan Turing, John von Neumann. There was a, a whole story to be told that the, the old saw about standing on the shoulders of giants. These were giants standing on the shoulders of giants, standing on the shoulders of, of giants. So I wrote a book called Tools for Thought. And in the process of writing that book, I got a modem and I started exploring uh, the online world, which at that time consisted of BBSs, which were mostly in teenage boys' bedrooms. They, they took their one telephone line and plugged it into it. And one person at a time could log in and and type and see what other people had, had written. Uh, There's always just one thread. And it was pretty exciting. And at that point, I, I read that there were tens of thousands of BBSs in the United States. And I think that that really influenced the online culture. There were a lot of people who were already turned on to communicating this way, even though it was really, really slow. And all you saw were words on a screen very slowly. I experimented with uh, the source, but it was something like $20 an hour. It wasn't quite that, Howard. I actually worked at the source in the beginning. Oh, yeah? I tell the story about the source quite often on this show, and I'll tell a little bit about it right now. We can hop back in. As you said, it was text mode only, but it had most of what we have on the web today. We had email, we had bulletin boards, we had chat, we had... By 1981, we had a precursor to social media called Participate. We had shopping. We had stock prices. But, yeah, it was expensive and it was slow. I would say it was more like $10 an hour. But that was $10 an hour in 1981 dollars, which would be about the equivalent of $25 or $30 an hour today. And, you know, people sometimes ask me, why would anybody do that for 30 bucks an hour for, you know, the equivalent of $30 an hour, but $10 an hour in the current currency then for character mode only, maybe 300 baht or 1200 baht if you could afford it. And the answer was because there was nothing else like it. It was the only, you know, networked email in the world. Then CompuServe came along. And there was that very interesting pre-internet era, which, of course, bulletin boards were also a very interesting part. But I just thought I'd hop in on that. Let me get you, why don't you get back to your story? Well, uh, I uh, actually hung out on Participate. And uh, there was a guy there by the name of Source Void Dave. Oh, yeah. Dave Hughes. He was Dave really Hughes. Dave Hughes. 
of course, we later encountered him on the well. And uh, Dave Hughes uh, was an older guy. He must be in his 90s uh, now. I'm sure he's still alive because I haven't heard that he's not. And Dave was a pretty, pretty vocal uh, voice online. So then uh, this thing called The Well got started in 1985. And uh, it, was, it was started by the same people who had done the Whole Earth Catalog, Stuart Brand and Larry Brilliant had started it. And, and I joined, oh, I guess about four months after it started. And it was tremendously exciting to me. Again, just words on a screen. It was really slow. These were the days of 24 baud modems. And the server was so slow that you could log in, go make a cup of coffee and come back and you would be ready. And the words went across the screen very, very slowly, but it was very exciting. Um, as a writer, it was exciting for several reasons. Uh, for one thing, I was alone in a room. You know, places like New York, I guess writers uh, hung out in bars, but suburban Marin County, California, that really wasn't a, an option for me. But here I could write for a while, and then I could go hang out with these people online. And it was like writing as a, a performing art. And it was like writing as a group performing art. And I, I was just tremendously interested in it and also interested in the, the network of people. One of the things uh, that I think was useful about The Well was that it started with the whole Earth Network, which was kind of diverse, uh, particularly for the time. Most of the people online back then were, were men, but on the whole Earth uh, electronic link, uh, a good percentage of them uh, were women. And it was mostly white, but uh, not entirely white. And it was school teachers and engineers and writers, a lot of people who later turned out to be technology correspondents like John Markov of the New York Times, Steve Levy from uh, you know, Rolling Stone and Wired, all, all hung out in the media conference there. It was like a, a watering hole for, for people who were interested in what was going on with, with technology. And so that's what got me really interested in, in following what was happening. Again, I wasn't really a technology guy, but uh, it, it seemed to me that this was a new communication medium that had some characteristics that no communication medium had ever had before. So I, I was excited about that. I wrote a, a story for Whole Earth Review in 1987 on virtual communities. And I talked about um, how I could get to know people and know what they were interested in. And if I came across things that I knew would interest them, I could, I could send that their way. And that if, if they knew what I was interested in, they could send things my way. And this, I, I think, one of the more interesting characteristics of online is that if you really cultivate a network of people who you think are interesting and who think what, what you have to say is interesting. And you, and you feed that network by giving people information that you come across that might be useful to them. They will feed you back. And for every, I have found that for everything I give away online, I get 10 times back. So that was exciting to me. It was writing as a performing art, but it was also this kind of online think tank in which we were all kind of consulting to each other. You know, I tried to get a book proposal. I mean, I got a book proposal, but uh, it took me four or five years to get a book contract. And I was told that publishers believed that only electrical engineers would use uh, computer networks to communicate with. 
But I wrote uh, The Virtual Community in, uh, I guess, 1992. It was published in 1993. I had not really traveled very much before then, but I went around the world and I hung out with virtual communities in rural Japan and England and, and France. It was really something that was happening around the world and, uh, and, and published that, that book, you know, quite a, a long time before this term social media came into being. In fact, the year it was published was the year of the, the New Yorker cartoon that, that said, uh, on, the, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. Um, so that was really the start for me. Yeah, that was a very interesting book. If people are interested in the early history of online, that's a great one to read. And that was, I think it was published in about 1993, something like that. Yeah. Yep. Uh, very, very interesting. Goes into the experience of the well and a bunch of other things. One of the things that you talk about in there, which I think was prescient, there's so much that's prescient in your work as I've gone through it here the last week or so getting ready for this podcast, is you had a section that you called Real-Time Tribes. Now, the technology that they use, IRC, which was a long-range, multi-room chat kind of protocol with lots and lots and lots of channels, has become sort of obsolete, though now we have WhatsApp, very, very similar conceptually. But what I thought that really jumped out at me as prescient was the idea of tribes. The online world from that time forward, and actually going back to the 80s, was organized in many ways in many, 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 many groups of specialized interest that one could think of almost as tribal. And they form their own culture. They form their own language. You know, we hear about, you know, some of the sort of tribal aspects today, like over on the Chans where the people have their own language. Quite interesting. What can you say about the idea of tribes online and how relevant is it today? Well, you know, so uh, I, I mentioned that I, I thought that this medium had some unique characteristics one of which is many to many. It, it used to be that you had few to many, you know, that if you were a newspaper editor or you had a television station, you could broadcast and then millions of people would listen to you. Uh, the thing about the internet as a communication medium is that anybody can communicate with, with everybody. Wh- whether they will listen to you is, you know, another story. The other characteristic I thought was interesting was that you could connect with people who shared your particular interests whether or not you had known them before, and, and even if they were on the other side of the world. And, and that could be anything. It, it, it could be, um, you know, raising uh, dogs or horses, or it could be your political beliefs or your re- religious beliefs. If you had a rare disease, you could connect with other people uh, who had that disease, or you were a caregiver, you could connect with other people. And, and you know, of course, these days, um, we can see that if you're a Nazi or a a racist or a terrorist or a criminal, you can also connect with others. And I, and I think that that's a kind of an illustration of a, 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 a general characteristic we've, we've noted after all these years, which is it's the, the internet is kind of a rising tide that lifts all boats. And some of those, those boats are hospital ships and some of them are, are pirate ships. And, and the people connecting with each other around affinities have found that not only can they connect with each other and talk about things, but they can organize action. They can organize collective action in the, the physical world. Uh, you know, we'll have to loop back to that idea when we talk about smart mobs. But, you know, back then, uh, the idea that you could find 10 or 20 or 100 people who shared your particular concern and spend all day talking with them, you know, I remember one of the things that, that got me interested in this idea of tribes was the 
Usenet, you know, um, there's a certain percentage of people who, who don't understand that there was social media decades before Facebook, but Usenet, uh, you know, originated on college campuses. But at, at one point, there were like 100 countries and, you know, thousands and thousands of, of messages every day on, on different subjects. And when I was researching the, the virtual community, I, I found that people in the Harley Davidson motorcycle uh, Usenet group gathered in the U.S. to ride together, and they came from Australia, and they came from, from Europe. So this medium that connected people, even though we couldn't really see each other back then, from all around the world, often led to people meeting in real life. And so I think a lot of that tribalism comes from that connection of connecting with people who share your interests and values, whatever those might be, and then doing something with them or meeting them. Yeah, I remember back on the well in the early days, you know, I think I joined the well in 1989. I was actually at a business meeting in Boston chatting with Mitch Kapoor about a project that we were both interested in. And he had joined the well like the week before. And he said, hey, Jim, you got to join the well, right? And so I did in December of 1989. And, you know, I, I was taken to it quite quickly. One of the things that was quite interesting about the well, particularly in those early days is probably a third of the people on the well had been recruited via their tribal affiliation with the Grateful Dead, the so-called deadheads. And they had numerous, I, frankly, I'm not a deadhead. I've been to two dead concerts, but they had various conferences about various things and they swapped, you know, bootleg recordings of sessions and things of that sort. And it was a mega tribe that had multiple subcomponents and everything else. And yet it, it was quite significant on the well back in those days. Well, in fact, uh, I think the, the, the Grateful Dead people on the well really kept the, the well alive financially. You know, it was, uh, I think, $2 an hour at that point. And Grateful Dead fans met at concerts and would hang out in the parking lot before and after the show and during the show, but, but then they dispersed. Um, so they were really a community looking for a place where they could hang out all the time. And they've got lots of things to talk about set lists and endless arguments. Um, you know, I guess any any fan group do, does the same thing. Um, and, and in fact, uh, I had gone to a Grateful Dead show uh, when I was in college in 1968, but had pretty much forgotten about them. But the people I met on the well brought me to, to Grateful Dead shows. Uh, so I got back into it in the, in the 1990s. But definitely... Um, the well probably survived as a, a viable business uh, because of the deadheads. And, and one of the things when I was researching the book, talking to Kevin Kelly about the design of the well, was that they designed it to be a, a, a business that would stay in business, that they would bring in enough revenue to pay the bills, but they weren't after uh, profit. Um, one of the interesting events, I don't know, maybe before or after you had joined, was that uh, so many people had joined, the server was really slow, and the users of the well organized to buy a new server. We, we literally pooled our money, gave it to the well, and said, look, well, we will buy our $2 an hour in advance so that you could go buy a new server. It's hard to think of any other business in which the customers buy the equipment for the business. And, and because most of the people 
on the well in the beginning. We're in the San Francisco Bay Area. We began to get together for parties. So, um, you know, marriages were formed and marriages broke up and people died and people sat by the the uh, the bedside of people who were dying. We passed the hat when when someone had medical bills. That's what got me thinking that this was very much like other communities. Yeah, it's interesting they mentioned the server barn raising. That was, was a bit before my time. But you may know that in the later days, the well was owned by Salon, a online magazine, essentially. And they totally ignored it after an initial flurry of interest and let it run into the ground. And they were about to close it when it was bought by somebody else or had they had some financial crisis or something. And the well members got together and bought it. So there was 11 of us, I was one of them, actually, that each chipped in and bought the well from Salon. And we've run it as an independent company ever since. And, and frankly, just as you talked about with Kevin Kelly, you know, it's cash flow positive, but not very. Nobody bought into the well for its financial cash flows that come out of it. We all bought in it because we care about the community. And as you said, so many things, I mean, I still recall this was so eerie and essentially an online wake with Tom Mandel. Remember Tom? Yes, sure do. Yeah. He was a real active member of the union, a good friend of mine. And, you know, we got to know each other in real life too. And he was dying of brain cancer. And the day he knew he was going to die, he started up a online wake while he was still alive using the send function on the well, which is kind of a very rudimentary chat. And we were all chatting with him and with each other as he actually was going into the end game of brain cancer. And it was extraordinarily moving and deep. And I had cried for hours afterwards. It was, you know, one of the more you know, deep and profound experiences of my life, intermediated on text on a command line, but about a person leaving the scene of this sphere for to wherever else they may go. Yeah, I remember the name of that thread was My Turn, which still gives me kind of chills up my spine. It's, you know, Tom um, was a futurist at the Stanford Research Institute, so a lot of what he had to say was really interesting and you weren't hearing it uh, anywhere else. And I think that that was one of the, the great values uh, of, of the well, because, you know, you had to be one of the, the sponsors of SRI's research to get some of that, that info. Yep, absolutely. And actually, Tom was the number one poster on the well. I don't know if you remember, I used to write had a program I wrote that analyzed well usage in various ways. And one of the ones was calculating who were the heaviest posters on the well. And so I'd post every month or two. And Tom was always number one. And he asked me to not put his name on his username because his bosses would fire him if they knew how much time he was spending on the well. And so I said, okay, we'll anonymize it just slightly. But yeah, he was quite a character, to say the very least. But we got to move on here. Howard's on a little bit of a time check today. One more thing I would like to talk about from that book, which is, again, very prescient, was you discussed three risks to the future of online. And two of the three, at least, have become, to my mind, very, very important in the current trajectory of our online world. The first one you talked about as commodification, that you know, this isn't just a bunch of happy hippies running on a vax in the Bay Area, but, you know, somehow this is going to become commodified big time. And you talk a fair amount about prodigy 
and you know its attempts to get hegemony in that world. Of course, that never happened, but they tried. You know, and then you also talked about risk number two, surveillance, control, and disinformation. Well, guess what, sports fans? What's life on Facebook and Twitter but surveillance, control, and disinformation? And then the third one, I think a little bit less important in the online world, but perhaps important in the gaming world, which is the hyper-realist critique, which is that the presentation of reality in computers could be so refined that it might actually replace people's desires to engage in the real world. So again, I think those, especially the first two, huge. I'd love to get your thoughts on you know what we were thinking at the time and what you think now about commodification first and then surveillance, control, and disinformation. Well, um, you know, when I wrote the book, again, I was excited by this new territory and I wasn't particularly an expert on it. And I thought about what, what are the major ways that this could go bad? Um, and those were three ways it could go bad. I also mentioned uh, enclosure. Back then, I, I, it was Bill Gates. Maybe Bill Gates will take this over and, and, and sell it back to us. And interesting, it was probably, probably Mark Zuckerberg wasn't born yet back then. And then, then the other one, I thought, well, what's the most Im- important thing? And, and I, I felt that our freedom, uh, the, the uh, health of democracy, will, when more, more people, when most people are online, will democracy be healthier? Will we have more freedom? And that led me to uh, discover this literature I'd never heard about, about the public sphere. So I, I want to circle back to this idea of the public sphere, because I think that that is a contemporary danger. But this this whole issue of commodification, um, well, now they call it surveillance capitalism. It's really the marriage of surveillance and commodification in that the the, the business model and you know, I was really there when the uh, attention business model started. I was the founding executive editor of Hotwired, which was the online zine of Wired Magazine. Uh, I, I quit pretty quickly because of the, the direction that, that they were going. But we were excited by the idea that we could put up a banner ad and sponsors would pay us for that, and then we could go pay people to, to write and to create art. How you made money online was a mystery, and people laughed at you if you said you were going to make money on the, the internet uh, prior to Netscape going public, and then things got really interesting. So we had we had the first banner ad, and we had realized, did not realize what that would lead to. It's not just the ad, of course. Um, it's tracking what people are doing online and using the knowledge of their preferences to customize ads and then sell that filter, that that attention of particular audiences to advertisers, which, you know, sounds pretty good, actually. However, it just it expanded so much. If you're talking about uh, Facebook, not only do they record every move of your mouse when you're on Facebook and every like that everybody makes on anything that you've ever done, but they they follow you around uh, the web elsewhere. If you log on to sites using Facebook, they know what you're doing. Um, And uh, they also buy information uh, about people that's collected by others. So now they've got, what is it, 2 billion users, and they have these extremely 
uh, detailed dossiers that enable them to micro-target advertising, which, you know, in, in the advertising business is, is really a great thing. It used to be you would put up a, a billboard so that, you know, hundreds of thousands of people would see it, and maybe the people who wanted to buy your commodity would, would see it as well. Same thing with television. You would, you know, hope that millions of people would see it and that maybe a few thousand of them might want to buy something here. Um, if somebody was interested in blue jeans and you knew that by what they were doing online, then you could send them blue jeans ads. Well, what we discovered uh, during the election of 2016 is that all kinds of people can use that micro-targeting system. So now we've got computational propaganda where you can customize your propaganda to specific audiences. Let's say you want to stir up racial unrest, for example. You can find the black people and the white people and customize uh, messages to them and use uh, Facebook's micro-targeting system to propagate that propaganda. And then, of course, the, the, there's developed a whole ecosystem of trolls who will, will re repeat that propaganda and, and, and bots that will do it automatically. The same, same thing on, on Twitter. I think the surveillance is not as detailed, but certainly the the bot networks are. We, we never really uh, expected that. In terms of surveillance outside of the online world, I, I did write about that. I had a syndicated column um, in the 1990s, 1994, and, um and there were people who cared about what was happening. I wrote about closed-circuit television cameras going up, and, and I wrote that they can't recognize your face yet, and they're not networked yet, but someday they will. Um, I wrote about uh, the, the sensors we all use when we're on the road and we, we want to go across a, a bridge that automatically collects our toll. Well, that automatically leaves a, a digital breadcrumbs. As every time you swipe your credit card, you're, you're, you're leaving a, a trail. And if somebody could get all of those breadcrumbs together, they can have quite a, a, a great dossier on your movements and your um, preferences, but nobody really cared. It was, you know, a couple of uh, privacy scholars at universities, but for the most part, the public didn't care. We, and I include myself uh, in this, we, we traded privacy for convenience. That Amazon knows what books I've looked at, um, and what books I've bought, well, that, that's good because it recommends things to me that I might be interested in. You know, I think you can see kind of a theme here. It's that rising tide lifts all boats thing is that um, a lot of these things that are very useful to people can be subverted. And, well, the rising tide lifts the boats of the wealthiest enterprises more than it does of individuals. So now we've got... Uh, you know, so back in the days of the well, there was Usenet, there was IRS, IRC, there was the well, there were BBSs. Um, all of these were smaller or larger uh, enterprises, but they were nothing like the semi-monopolies we see today. You know, you've got Amazon, Apple, Google, uh, Twitter, and Facebook. So many people these days don't understand that th those were all invented because we had an internet that was designed to enable people to innovate on it, no matter who you were. Um, Tim Berners-Lee didn't have to 
rewire the internet. He just needed to to pass some code around to people, and the and the the Google twins didn't have to ask permission to to create a new kind of search engine. Um, that kind of open innovation, I think, is tremendously threatened by this enclosure by these these giants. If you really want to um, innovate these days, you either have to work for one of those guys. Or you've got to do something that's far away from, far enough away from their business that they're not going to steal it. And if you're successful, you're going to want them to acquire you. So we're living in a whole different uh, innovation ecosystem. And now, right now, at this moment, so many people are forced to be online because of the the, the COVID nineteen uh, quarantine. We're forced to have our meetings online. Oh. People are discovering things that, that, that you and I knew a long time ago, which is you don't have to go to the office all the time. You can communicate online. I do think that there's a place for the office, and I think that the place for the office is primarily social. You can get a lot of work done at home. You know, if one in four people after this COVID is over stayed home one day out of four, think of all the carbon we wouldn't be putting into the atmosphere. Think of all the hours you wouldn't, you wouldn't be on the freeway. So, um, gosh, I don't know where I was going with that. Let's move on. Oh, we're talking about the fact that the big guys control things in a way they never did before. Though it is useful to remember that in the late 80s and early 90s, AOL was a pretty damn dominant power, and it had its walled garden alternative to the open internet. But in those days, it was still relatively small on the scale of things. It had millions of users, maybe even tens of millions, but it certainly didn't have billions like the platforms have today. And it does seem from a social and political perspective that we don't know how to think about these platforms, right? You know, we have the current controversy with the idiot in chief and his tweets, right? And is Twitter a free speech platform? No, well, constitutionally, it's not. It's a private business. They could be as arbitrary as they want. They could say no goddamn Republicans if they wanted, and it's within their legal rights. But... Does a platform that's that ubiquitous and in many ways become the public square have some larger duty to allow free speech? I don't know. It's a really interesting and difficult question that the scale, I think, brings forth. And we really have not dealt with it as a society in the United States, least of all. You know, Europe has made some attempts, at least, to bring these platforms under governmental control. I'm not sure they've moved in the right direction. In fact, in my view, they've moved in partially the wrong direction, partially right about privacy, partially wrong about censorship. But in the United States, the platforms make the rules, period. And for things that are that ubiquitous, that does not strike me as the right model. Do you have any thoughts about that, about how we as citizens should think about these platforms? Well, you know, uh, I mentioned the public sphere uh, a while back. When I was 1992, I was writing the virtual community. I thought, um, well, what does this have to do with democracy? And I, I discovered this uh, this political philosophy. Ger- a, a German political philosopher by the name of, of Habermas um, wrote these books. They're they're practically unreadable, in, in, in my opinion. But he, he had this very potent idea, which he, he traced out historically, which is that democracy, you know, rule rule of the people rather than um, uh, by, by a sovereign, um, was not just about voting for your leaders. It was about having a population that was, A, free enough uh, to, to talk with each other, 
and be informed enough to have some idea what they're talking about to discuss the issues of the day and to argue about the issues of the day. And, you know, when the, when the uh, American Revolution happened, um, there were anonymous um, op-eds in the newspapers that we now call the Federalist Papers that were arguing about things. There were the committees of correspondence. So the, the idea that the entire population uh, supports the, the democracy that, you know, representation and voting um, are the most visible parts of it is very important. And Habermas had two fears. One of them was that the, the nascent science of public relations would, would enable the wealthy and the powerful to, to skew the, the public sphere, to convince people to see things their way, whether they, they knew that they were being manipulated or not. And his other fear was that, that, that journalism would be overtaken by um, the profit motive and that the role of journalists as, as informing the people of a free society would again be subverted by those who had uh, wealth and power. Well, what he didn't foresee was cop- computational uh, propaganda on the scale that we're seeing and also the, the scale of things. So let's say that, that Twitter and Facebook wanted to um, eliminate the misinformation uh, that was being broadcast. And, and you know, there's, there's a, a big gray area in political discourse. You know, my, you may say something that I think is totally bogus and we can argue about it, but, uh, you know, something like uh, if you swallow disinfectant that, that may cure COVID, that's literally um, life-threatening misinformation. If, if these platforms with billions of users wanted to police that, they would be unable to. So we're, 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 we're kind of in a bad position here in that, um, you know, we're, we're cer- certainly seeing with, with the, in the case of Facebook that they are reluctant to uh, act as a, an arbiter of truth. But, you know, even if they decided to do so, um, in the arms race between manipulation of information, disinformation, misinformation, what I call disinfotainment, and the ability of individuals to find their way through that, uh, I think that, that democracy is really losing that arms race. You know, I wrote a book in 2012 about the, um, the major social media literacies that, that people needed to have. And, and I chose crap detection as the first one. Well, no, I chose attention as the first one and crap detection as the second one. The, the idea was that, well, if more people could learn to distinguish the good info from the bad info, then that would not only be good for them, it would be good for the public sphere. You know, this happened a long time ago before Google, but my, my daughter, who's, who's now uh, grown, um, when she was in middle school, she started using um, InfoSeek and other search engines to do her homework. And I sat down with her and I said, look, you get a book from the library. There was a publisher, um, an editor, a librarian, the teacher who assigned the book, all of them were kind of gatekeepers that, that will guarantee to you that the information in that, that book is, is more or less accurate. Uh, you can put a, a query into a search engine and get a million answers in a couple of seconds, and it's now up to you to determine what's, what's real info and what's bad info. I used the example of a site called martinluthercingjr.org uh, that is actually run by, by Nazis, 
It looks like it's a biographical site about the civil rights leader, but if you look at it a little bit deeper, it's kind of a dark story about him. Um, so I showed her that you could use who is and find out who's behind this. Um, it was a, a, a guy by the name of, uh, was it Don Black? Something like that. Um, and if you look him up, you'll find out that he was a Nazi. So you know what? That was fairly easy to find out. But nowadays, you've got AstroTurf sites that look exactly like they're an environmentalist site, but they're actually run by a chemical company. There is so much sophisticated disinformation out there that the education to enable people to sift through it is, is much more important. And as far as I can tell, completely lacking in, in educational institutions. Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get we'll get to that soon when we talk about NetSmart. Oh, okay, okay. But those are very, very important things. In the interest of time, we talked about some of the negatives. But I also, and I always like to do this because so much of our discourse about the nets today are about the negatives on the net. But there's a hell of a lot of positives, right? Otherwise, why would people be doing it? And you wrote quite a bit. You know, at the end of virtual communities, you talk about the formation of the EFF. I helped out on that in my own little way around the edges. And then you talked in considerably more length in your book, Smart Mobs, about how people can use these online tools and these platforms to do good things. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your perspective on those two things, or the EFF story and in virtual communities, and then transition into Smart Mobs. Well, you know, um, one of the things that got me thinking about community was that there was a, a parenting conference on the well. And... And although, uh, you know, the arguments got pretty hot in a lot of places. In the parenting conference, we, we were talking about our, our, our children. And, and although we might have argued about things elsewhere, it was really a very convivial place. There was a guy by the name of uh, Phil Katz, was his, his online name, who, who uh, organized a baseball game after a while so that all of us parents could get our kids out and, and meet each other face to face. And... Uh, Oh, I, you know, not too long after he started organizing those baseball games, uh, Phil came online and, and disclosed that his 15-year-old son had been diagnosed with leukemia. And overnight, literally overnight, a, a support group um, materialized. And, you know, there were, um, we did pass a hat and, and raised about $15,000 for medical expenses. But there was a, a nurse um, on there who could, could give him answers at, 11 at night when he wasn't going to call his, his doctor. And, uh, you know, his son uh, sadly did die. And like the last two rows of the last two pews in the, in the church for his services were, were people uh, who had known his parents exclusively online. Uh, the reason, one reason I tell this story is that uh, 10 years ago, I was diagnosed with cancer and I went to, uh, to daily, uh, radiation treatments, and I needed to get people to drive me back and forth to these uh, radiation treatments. And uh, a lot of people that I had known on the well decades before just signed up spontaneously to help me. And by golly, one of the people who drove me was was Phil Cat. And, you know, I think um, I mentioned before that if you have a rare disease, you know, if you have a disease that only one in a million people have, well, there are 2,000 others on the internet, and you can connect with them. If you have a disease or you're a caregiver for a disease, you know very well what I'm talking about, that there is support you can find online. 
There's support you can find in the middle of the night when nobody else is going to talk to you. And these people are going to help you out in, in the real world in many, many instances. Then, of course, you know, I, I started writing, uh, I started researching smart mobs because I was, I was traveling a fair amount by that time. And I noticed that people in Tokyo were, were looking at their, their telephones. Why would you look at your telephone? And then a couple of weeks later, I was in Helsinki and people were looking at their telephones. In 2000, there was, people in the U.S. were not texting. That really took off with the iPhone in, in 2007. So, uh, you know, that was, uh, you know, what futurists call a signal. Something's going on here. I wasn't sure at all what it was. But then I found out about, uh, there, well, there were a couple of things that happened. One was called the Battle uh, of Seattle, where the, where the World Trade Organization had a meeting there. And the people who were opposed to the World Trade Organization, really for the first time, used laptops and the internet and mobile phones to coordinate their actions. That may not seem like a big deal today, but that was a big signal back then. Oh, I remember that. That was huge. That was huge. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it seemed like that was a watershed of some kind in, in, in terms of political power, that the state and established central powers, they had the radio telephones in their cars. They had the ability to coordinate with each other. Suddenly, citizens could do that. And then in the Philippines, there was uh, Joseph Estrada was the president of the Philippines. He was accused of corruption. There was a, a big trial in the Congress there. And, uh, and, and when a lot of his political allies uh, tried to s shut that down, uh, people in the Philippines sent out text messages saying, uh, show up in the main square, wear black. And within 15 minutes, millions of people started showing up in the main square there. And of course, the church and the military had a lot to do with it, but the Estrada regime fell. And that was really the first time that people took collective action within minutes, people who didn't know each other, who really weren't in the same political party, were able to use their telephones to coordinate collective action in the, in the physical world. And uh, that, to me, was the final signal that this was something really worth looking into. And, you know, as a, as a, a writer, I always uh, try to do what any good journalist does, which is go find some experts and see if they know what's going on. You know, when I wrote uh, the virtual community, I found a, I didn't, I couldn't find any um, professors who would talk about this. But I found a graduate student at UCLA in sociology by the name of Mark Smith, and I asked him why would people give away information to strangers online, and he said knowledge capital, uh, social capital, and communion, uh, which I think is still true and important. So I turned to Mark Smith again around 2000, 2001, and he said, it sounds like the fact that people are carrying phones and that they can connect to the internet has lowered the barriers for collective action. And, and you know, we saw, remember the, that book, uh, Smart Mobs, was, was published in uh, 2002. Arab Spring happened in 2011, so much later that most journalists had forgotten about that. But, you know, the Arab Spring was all about Twitter and, and Facebook. The Egyptian revolution started with a Facebook page. And of course, the, the Egyptian revolution was hijacked by the military. As, as, you know, revolutions quite often are hijacked. But the fact that they were 
started spontaneously by people using social media was a, a watershed. And in fact, um, for an edited volume for MIT Press, I spent some time just collecting instances of people using mobile phones. They weren't quite really smartphones yet. Uh, and the internet to coordinate uh, collective action all over the world, inc including the People's Republic of China. And there were hundreds and hundreds of incidents. And then, uh, again, a disaster relief after the tsunami in Asia. Really, again, literally within minutes, the Asian South Asian tsunami blog was set up that helped coordinate uh, people's actions. I remember one instance in which someone said, I've got... Um, 50,000 nails that I can contribute to people who are, are building temporary housing in, in Indonesia, I can get them to the dock if somebody can get them over there. It's called, you know, emergent response happens in all disasters. Before the official first responders get there, um, you know, it's the people in the neighborhood who dig you out. Now we're seeing this emergent collective response happening worldwide. And it's happened, there was the People Finder Wiki after Hurricane Katrina, so many people were scattered. How were they going to find their families? They were using Craigslist. They were using Usenet. So the Katrina people find, I remember they, they put this together very quickly and, and they scraped all of these other sources so that people would have a single place to find their relatives. And I remember um, talking with the people who set it up, who said that somebody had found a way to get their data flowing much more quickly. Um, and they located this person and, and they, they, they called him. And he said, I'd be happy to talk to you, but I have to go to school now. He was uh, 15 years old. So we've seen so many instances, and we will continue to see so many instances of what's called mutual aid. We're seeing it right now in the United States with the, the failure of a government to coordinate uh, leadership around the response. We are seeing mutual aid organizations popping up everywhere. I, I wrote a post on it on, on my, my Patreon, and you know, in, in order to, to give some credibility to, to my theorizing, I, I started looking up a few. And, you know, I, I stopped at around 20 um, of different efforts around to coordinate um, response. So mutual aid is as potent as all of the negative effects we're seeing. You know, again, I think we need a more nuanced discourse about technology that recognizes there's a, a, a very big gray area. And we really have to talk about how we want to act as users uh, and designers of technology. It's not just uh, black and white. It's not, you know, I think until fairly recently, people considered the latest technology to be a good thing. It was progress. Now people are asking questions about it. And, and I think that's important. Yep. Yeah, that's you know, where we're at today, but I think it is important and I'm glad we did this. You, and you did give some excellent examples that while there are issues with the network platforms, there are great benefits. I'll tell you one here locally. I live a very remote farm in the Appalachian mountains and we have a growing, call it a neo back to the land movement of young folks who are buying or renting old mountain farms and putting them into high quality organic production. And there was five of these farms locally that had built a great clientele with restaurants and they were selling their chickens, their eggs, their wine and cider, their greens and their vegetables and other things to these high-end restaurants. Well, guess what? 
the high-end restaurants are all closed. And fortunately, one of them was quite computer literate and put together an online store that allowed all five of the farms to offer essentially a community-supported agriculture but customized. So you could sign up, and but you could get what you wanted each week. You go down to the more central of the five farms and pick up your stuff. And how's it been marketed? Mostly on Nextdoor and on Facebook. And within a couple of weeks, these five farms were able to replace at least a significant part of their incomes, which had literally gone to zero when all these fine dining restaurants closed by selling directly to consumers. And, you know, that would have been impossible in the pre-internet age. So it's, it's, you know, again, I love to point out and hear stories about the good that comes from our platforms. Yes, we have to be wary of them, but we also have to acknowledge that there's a reason they're so popular. They do some good things too. Yeah. And I think that we ought to look at, well, what are the characteristics of the bad things and what can we do about it? And what are the characteristics of the good things and how can we do more of that? You know, one of the things that I think we, we have opportunities now that, that have been forced. Um, we are forced by the, the COVID-19 shelter in place to do a lot of our uh, social and business communication online. Um, teachers have been forced to teach online. Um, teaching online is not a replacement for face-to-face, but it's not worse than face-to-face if you know how to to do it. And I think there's a a huge opportunity, particularly in places where you really can't afford uh, a a high high quality uh, bricks and mortar institution. And and I think that it's it's going to put some good pressure on universities to to change. And it's going to highlight that the, the big name universities with the big businesses and the big endowments um, are maybe not as important to education as the community colleges and the small liberal arts um, schools are. Um, another uh, forced uh, opportunity is that uh, transporting thousands of people thousands of miles to have a, a face-to-face conference just isn't happening. Um, you can have a face to, you can have a conference with thousands of people online if you know how to do it. And we're beginning to see that happening. So I think a lot of these um, things we're being forced to do um, could be, become permanent features. The same thing with community-supported agriculture is happening in, in my neighborhood. These distribution networks that are just ad hoc set up using online media um, to enable the farmers to get their fresh food to people um, I think that those are going to continue when the restaurants open again. Uh, we have an opportunity to understand what's happening and, and to try to, to shape the outcome. And I, I also think, I call it green space online. You know, you can still start a, um, a BBS. You can use Discourse or, or Reddit very easily, really cheaply or, or free uh, to do that. You, you, can, you can start a, a, a chat group. There are a lot of ways that people can start their smaller communities of interest online. And I don't think we're, I don't think we're going to overcome Facebook's monopoly, but I think we ought to preserve that space outside of Facebook's enclosure to create our own online media, online communities. Uh, there's so many tools to do it now, and there's a lot of know-how about how to do it. And now we're sort of being forced to do it. 
Yep, it's been a, a remarkable amount of innovation. And even Facebook, you know, as much as it, it's a shit show, you know, it has almost unintentionally, I think, created the groups space, which I know a lot of people, including people I work with and some of my own projects are done on Facebook groups. And as far as we can tell, there's very little or no advertising. They don't have control of the order in which content appears. And so a lot of the sort of the real negatives about Facebook go away. And yet you are only a single click away from, you know, several billion people. So even within Facebook, the groups phenomena turned out to be of value. I'd say I spent 95% plus of my Facebook time such that it is in groups and only in groups. You know, the, the, the public Facebook has become much, much, much less interesting to me. So yeah, I think the point that we can build our own worlds can, and continue to do so is even true in Facebook. There's a lot of uh, this mutual aid is organized on Facebook. And so a lot of good stuff happens in Facebook groups. A lot of bad stuff, you know, uh, uh, Nazi law enforcement have their own Facebook uh, groups. My problem with Facebook groups is that the way that a fairly large group can have sustained conversations, that was solved way back um, in the, with, with the software we used on the well. Uh, and, and software for enabling that kind of conversation, asynchronous conversation has, has evolved since then. Um, if you've got a group, a Facebook group, and you, you, you post something, that will be visible to people until um, somebody else posts something and then yours is, is deprecated. Um, if you've got a group of 500 people, it's really hard to have a, a conversation that's going to sustain for more than you know, a day uh, that way. Of course, with, with a good uh, conferencing software, well, the, the software knows what you want to see and which threads you've been following. And when you log in, it shows you the new responses in the threads you've been following. Again, a problem that was solved. You know, I was invited to speak to the social scientists at Facebook a few years ago. And it's interesting because uh, Google, where my daughter worked for eight years, um, I know of one social scientist that they uh, hired and he was miserable there. But uh, Facebook had, gee, this group was, must have been 100 people. And so I ranted at them the same rant about why can't you make um, Facebook groups a little bit more like a, a good BBS or computer conferencing system? I don't know why they haven't. Uh, like you said, it doesn't show advertising. So I, I don't know what their business reason is for, but it must be a business reason. Anyway, let's move on. Yeah, let's move on. Let's move now to your most recent book, NetSmart, which I believe was published in 2012, which must mean it was written in 2010 or 2011. And again, pretty prescient about the trends of the world. You know, let's start with the first chapter where you happen to hit one of my favorite topics. Regular listeners of this show know I basically say you are your attention. And your first chapter is called Attention. And I think it's why and how to control your mind's most powerful instrument. Talk a little bit about attention and, you know, I don't know how much you know about attention from a, I do remember actually in the book, there's a fair amount about the cognitive science of attention and how the attention economy has become the world that we live in. Well, um, I chose that as the, uh, I had five uh, literacies and I chose that as the first one um, because attention is the, is the foundation of thought and, and communication, but also it was very clear even in 2010, that these online media um, and increasingly mobile media were making money by harvesting our 
attention. The more attention you could pay to a site, the more advertising they could um, display to you. And of course, we're, we're now learning that the, the people who create a lot of these apps understand the same psychology that the, the inventors of slot machines understood. How do, you, how do you capture people's attention and get them to continue paying attention? It's, it's like we've been captured in that sense. Um, the good news is that uh, your attention is not fixed. You can learn to control your attention. It's just that you never did. It's not something that your parents teach you. It's not something that they teach you in school. Oh, yeah, you got to pay attention to the teacher when they're talking. That doesn't really mean that you've gained control over your attention. That Again, I did my research, and, and the good news is if you look at multi-thousand-year-old contemplative traditions, and, and you look at a lot of the cognitive science and neuroscience about attention, it's certainly possible to train your attention. And my interpretation of that is that any attention to how you're using your attention um, is a lot better than not paying attention to it at all. Then, of course, there are a lot of things that you can do. You know, one thing that I ask my students to do was uh, something that I did for quite a while, which is at the beginning of the day when I, I sat at my computer. And, you know, nowadays you might, it might be a laptop or a, a desktop or it might be your, your phone. But I said, uh, take a, a post-it note and, and write uh, two or three things you intend to accomplish with your computer by the end of the day and just put that in the lower corner of your screen. And every once in a while, your, your gaze will fall upon it. And that's time for you to look at the time and figure out how much have you accomplished and what are you doing right now? And it's really not a matter of policing yourself. It's a matter of making yourself more aware. And, and I, I taught something I called infotension. I think there's a whole lot of, of uh, more room for research and education about infotention. But you know, I started writing um, the book because Going back to the 1980s, I was writing about personal computers, and then in the 1990s about what became known as social media, and then I started writing about mobile media. At every turn, scholars and critics would ask, are, are these things really any good for us as, as individuals and, and communities and, and societies? And I concluded by around 2010 that a lot depends on what we know and how many people know it. Um, it's a matter of literacy. You and I and uh, a fair number of other people, we, we know how to make our way online. Um, you, you mentioned AOL a while back. Well, you know, on Usenet, every September, uh, a bunch of new freshmen would get their internet accounts and they would start acting up on Usenet. Well, the, the regulars on Usenet would enforce the norms that they had developed by being kind of forceful with the newcomers. One day, AOL cut loose 3 million people on the internet with, with no instruction at all. And that became known as the September that never ended because those norms weren't passed along. And I think that's one, one of the things that's missing from the, the worldwide social media are norms. And what are the most important uh, norms that we need? What are the most important things that we need to know how to do? That if an individual knows this, that individual will do better, but also... The more individuals who know that, the, the healthier and the more useful the comments will be. So I came up with attention, crap detection, participation, 
collaboration and network awareness. And you know, attention is, is the first one. If you don't have control of your attention, you can be manipulated in all kinds of ways. But again, um, very close behind that is, is crap detection. Um, can, can you on your own find the information you need and guarantee that it, it's not going to kill you or it's not going to be detrimental to your social life or, or to democracy? You know, that was an issue in my mind in 2010, but now I think it's an, an overwhelming issue. I wonder if we are capable as individuals to really be excellent crap detectors, considering the level of sophistication that the crap producers are using. I'm currently reading a very interesting book called Lie Machine by Philip Howard from Oxford. And he goes into great detail about the techniques and the money spent and the skills that go into crafting junk news, as he calls it. He has now abandoned fake news because it's been co-opted by other people. And one wonders, is the average person, keep in mind the average person has an IQ of 100 and in the United States has maybe a year of college, is such a person actually capable on their own of doing crap detection? Or does it make sense for them to club with other people and, you know, what we call collective sense making and together try to figure out what makes sense and what doesn't. I wonder what you think about that idea. Well, you know, we have an existence proof of that that works. When I started uh, looking at people who were doing research on on credulity and, and incredulity online, uh, they noted that a lot of gamers educate each other about, um, you know, what's real and what's what's not. Online, so you know, I, it it certainly um, is possible. To me, it comes back to education. You know, when 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 I was uh, teaching uh, digital journalism, um, I came across the the Lipman Dewey debates almost exactly hundred years ago. Kind of the media superstar that day was a, a young New York Times um, reporter by the name of Walter Lipman. He wrote a book called Public Opinion, and his opinion was that the U.S. has become this industrialized, complex society, and that Americans are too uninformed and too gullible to, to manage such a society. He, he, he proposed that the technocrats run it. And uh, John Dewey, who was an older professor at, at uh, Columbia at the, the, the time, said, well, if um, Americans are, are not well-informed, we need better journalism. And if Americans are too uh, credulous, we need better education. Um, and so here we are a hundred years later, and I asked my students, would, would you bet a thumb uh, on Lipman or on Dewey? And, um, you know, I think that that argument is still going on. Um, for better and for worse, education systems are, are very conservative in the sense that it, it, they take a long time to change. So we have a, a society in which the, the technology is, is causing social changes at, at a a rapid rate, but educational systems are not, are not really dealing with it. And, and I think this, this kind of educate each other in you know, tribal uh, education for better and worse is what's happening today online. Yeah, that's both better and worse. I mean, if you have good peers, I mean, I'm a member of a group uh, on Facebook called Rally Point Alpha. I think it's like 1,500 people who are really quite rigorous sense makers. And we collectively process what gets posted by the members when they think there's something that might be significant, but might have a subtext or 
be you know seriously biased in a non-obvious way and you know there'll be some quite serious dissection of these pieces and commentary about them but on the other hand if you're a member of you know white supremacists of missouri or something the collective sense making of that group while maybe accurate from their point of view it's hard to imagine how that has social utility yeah so you know i you talked about tribalism i think um you know it's sense sense making tribes are what we have now Again, in regard to um, education, I learned using social media with my, my students, it's not just the, about the social media, but, but about the pedagogy, that um, students are used to not being trusted. They're used to the teacher delivers information and you figure out what's going to be on the test and then you do well on the test to show that you got that information. It's called the banking model. The teacher has some information and the it's the duty of the students to, to bank it. Trying to educate myself, I, I, I came across uh, Neil Postman's book on, on education in, in which he said, societies that change slowly, um, it's the duty of the older generation to pass along uh, what works. In societies that change very rapidly, it's the duty of the older generation to teach the younger generation how to learn from, for themselves. And our education system has not been set up to encourage people to learn for themselves, even though that's really a human instinct, and we are human in large part because of our ability to do, do social learning. Schools have had this monopoly on learning since forever. Um, but now, uh, if you've got a teenager, ask them how they would learn how to play the ukulele or configure a web server, and I, I bet they're gonna say, well, I'll do a search on, on YouTube, and they'll, they'll probably find another teenager who will teach them how to do it. You know, we've got, we've got YouTube, we've got Wikipedia, we've got Google, we've got, um, you know, the Internet Archive, we've got um, so many of the books in the world online. It's now p possible for people to um, educate themselves and educate uh, each other without going to school. Of course, what's missing is, well, how do we do this? So, you know, I started a, uh, a, a project I called Pyragogy. Instead of pedagogy, you know, that's like teaching the young. Pyragogy is like peers teaching each other. Um, and a, a group, this was 2011, a, a group materialized online of educators from all over, Mexico and Japan and, and Germany. And there's, it's still going. I, I really dropped out of it a couple of years later, and, and the community took it on by itself. But if you go to pyragogy.org, you'll find that they, they're in the fourth iteration of a free handbook on how groups of people can learn online. Let's say uh, you and your tribe want to learn a particular subject and none of you are an expert. How do you go about finding resources and qualifying and organizing those resources and creating learning experiences? Which media do you use? How do you, how do you assess it? Um, so I, I think that we, we have both an, an educational challenge and that our educational institutions really can't keep up with learning craft detection and uh, attention management. But we also have the ability to learn uh, with and, and from each other online. Yep. And I'll give you an example. You know, you talked about YouTube. My wife was starting to complain about her hair getting too long and scraggly. And she said, I bet you can figure out how to cut my hair on YouTube. And so I've been watching more YouTube haircutting videos that I'm really interested in. But I think I have learned how to cut hair with scissors and a comb. And I'm going to give it a try tomorrow. And as I said, well, you know, no matter how bad it is, it'll grow back in six weeks. So 
We shall see. We're getting close on time here. There's other interesting things in NetSmart, which I would encourage people to read, but I would like to jump ahead a little bit to a last topic, which is something I didn't even know you had done until I was doing research for this podcast, and I found it extremely interesting, and that is the class that you teach on the literacy of cooperation. Oh, yeah. Well, um, again, you know, I, I usually learn things by stumbling across them and then looking into them. And when I was writing Smart Mobs, this issue of collective action became interesting to me. And I discovered the work of Eleanor Ostrom uh, in particular. Ostrom was uh, awarded the Nobel Prize in uh, economics, which, which bugged a lot of economists because she was a political scientist. And, and I think most people um, know the phrase, the tragedy of the commons, it was written by a, a biologist at Stanford warning about, um, you know, population growth, threatening the human population. And the, the, the commons he was referring to were the common land in most villages where that was known, not owned by anyone and anybody could graze it. And inevitably, people would, would graze as many cattle or sheep as they could, and they would destroy the, the, the commons, you know, the desertification of North Africa happened for, with people just going for, for firewood further and further. And his conclusion, that's what the tragedy is, is that this is inevitable. Um, well, Ostrom, gee, it took some years. Ostrom asked, well, is it really inevitable? And so she studied people who were, were managing common pool resources, um, fisheries, um, timber, um, water systems, policing. And she concluded that there was a... a core of people, of groups everywhere, who did manage to use common resources without despoiling it or, or overusing it. And she found seven design characteristics around those communities that, that seemed to be common. One of them was clear boundaries. Another one was ability to make new rules. Another one was um, fairly inexpensive, um, relatively fair means of adjudicating disputes. And uh, I thought, well, why humans cooperate and, and, and why we don't cooperate in so many instances, that's so important to so many things. Uh, you know, we've got this global environmental crisis and, and uh, global warming. We've got nuclear weapons. We've got, you know, disease management. All of these things are commons issues. Wouldn't the people who are dealing with this um, deal with it better? Not that there's a formula, but if they understood more about human cooperation. So um, I, I, I had a little course at, at, uh, at, at Stanford that I used to start learning about this. We had Jimmy Wales came out and, and, and spoke, and certainly Wikipedia is a, a great example of cooperation. There was a sociologist by the name of uh, Manker Olson who wrote about um, collective action and pretty much um, established the the norm among uh, social scientists that a group of people who are not related and who are not incented financially um, are not going to create public goods. Of course, Wikipedia is a, a counterexample to that, and we find out that, that, that people actually do that. So, you know, uh, one of the things that I discovered was that um, biologists work on co cooperation, sociologists work on cooperation, economists, computer scientists, um, political scientists, but they don't really talk to each other. And so I thought, gee, an interdisciplinary study of cooperation, how important that would be. I, I actually 
was invited to give a TED talk in, in 2005. And, and that's what, what I gave the, the talk on, calling for uh, a, a new science of cooperation. I'm happy to say that that's happening now. There's, there are centers at Arizona State University and in Amsterdam where they're doing this interdisciplinary study. I was naive uh, about the role of interdisciplinary work in, in the, um, the university. Um, you are rewarded for your specialization in a university, and, and every minute you spend uh, in interdisciplinary cooperation, um, you're, you're really losing out. It's, a, it's a, an, an opportunity cost. So those institutions are not really designed well for collaboration, although you know, they certainly are, are trying. So I started this online course in, in which I would introduce people um, to the literature. And again, this is one of the things that I, I learned teaching blended learning at, at, at Berkeley and Stanford, but also running my own courses online, was that, um, yes, we had a weekly live session, like, like the Zoom sessions today. I use different technology in which I, I gave short lectures. But during these lectures, the, the people who participated they searched and put the things that they found in the, in the, the chat. Other people can um, con, uh, contextualize those with a couple of sentences describing them. Other people created a, a, a wiki page for that session. So again, the, the pedagogy that I learned was to, to give up some of my control as the teacher and to, to, to ask the students to become more responsible for their own learning and in my experience, they react really, really well uh, to that. They haven't been trained to do that, but that's, that's something that humans naturally want to do. So I taught a bunch of people, and a lot of them are in like peace studies or in um, studying uh, housing and, and homelessness. And I'm, I'm hoping that having a kind of a 50,000-foot view understanding of what we know about uh, cooperation, which is a great deal, and what we don't know about uh, cooperation, the obstacles to it, which is a great deal, that, that people would be able to do a better job. And again, I think that this, this ought to be a major in universities. People ought to do interdisciplinary studies of cooperation and collective action. Yeah, very, very good. Are you, are you still offering the course? I haven't done the course in a couple of years, but um, oh, I guess a year or so ago, I, I took the curriculum, and I turned it into an, an eight-part uh, annotated reading list for that. So I may give the course again, but um, if, if you want to do your own uh, readings on this, I've, it's, I've got this eight-part. It's open to the public on, on Patreon. You know, Patreon, I, I, I quit Facebook because I hate what Facebook is doing to the world and started sharing on Patreon. And, and what's interesting about Patreon is that they don't have the surveillance capitalism model. They're not of serving uh, ads to you based on your preferences. They're enabling people who believe in what you're doing to contribute a dollar a month or $2 every time you do a video or a, a podcast. And, and I've always liked the idea of, of writing for or showing my art for or teaching for a public rather than an audience. And the audience um, is really from the broadcast age. They're, they're, they're people who read your stuff or view your stuff or listen to your stuff, and maybe they'll send you a fan letter or buy something. But a public, uh, and again, it's, it's only the internet that's made this possible, a public can link to you. Um, a public can disagree with you and, and, and debate with you. A public can, can join you for 
collective action. So uh, I like writing for uh, my patrons. So about about half the material I put up is only for the people who pay a dollar a month or two dollars a month or whatever. But the rest of it is, is free to the public. And I, I like that platform a lot better. I don't think that the people paying each other uh, business model is going to take over uh, from the uh, surveillance capitalism model. It's too bad we didn't have micro payment technology so that we could have started out with people paying each other. You know, I would pay a fraction of a penny to, to read something, and I might read a bunch of things every day, and it wouldn't make a huge difference to me. I might even come out ahead if people read my stuff. Of course, that was when Ted Nelson wrote Computer Lib in 1974, in which that's what he hoped would, would happen, and Patreon is kind of a step in that direction. Yeah, that's a good good thought. And, and again, I think it when I think back to this long arc that we've both been on since the early eighties, you know, to my mind, where things started going in a direction that I like less, though as we said, there's good and bad, is when advertising became the predominant paradigm. And I think we we both know Chris Anderson, I think, one of the founders of Wired. And he wrote the very influential book, Free, that essentially supercharged the phenomena of all online business models that could be free, should be free. And well, if it's free, as they say, if you're not paying, then I guess you're the product. And that is indeed where we're at. I'm glad to hear that Patreon is working for you. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I've been a supporter of you on Patreon for some time. And I would encourage other folks to check out Howard Rheingold on Patreon. With that, I think we're at the end of our time. I just would like to thank you again for this very interesting survey of your work and the, and the history of the online world. It's entirely my pleasure, Jim. Very great. Very good. Thank you. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.